This is episode number 13 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast. I'm super excited to continue our conversation with Brock McFadden and we will super nerd out on Photoshop in this episode. So if you are into that, stay tuned. Also, if you want to be one of the first to hear some news about courses on boutiqueretouching.com, stay tuned, we will deliver some news somewhere in between in this episode. Before we start today's episode and get into all the nitty and gritty and nerdy stuff, the show is brought to you by boutiqueretouching.com and also learnpostproduction.com, a school which will eventually launch and teach you all things about postproduction. So now let's jump right back into our interview. Yeah, we're hitting some deep topics here, right? Yeah, yeah, it's been good. So where is retouching going? Yeah, where do, where do you feel retouching is going? Well, I think there are a few factors that determine how the retouching industry is changing or developing. For once, I've seen professional retouching becoming more important over the past few years. And I think part of this is the technology change in cameras. So the dynamic range has gotten better. The cameras can capture higher megapixel images with the amount of detail we can capture comes other expectations on how the quality might be delivered and also it's been changing over like what i mentioned before in the 90s and 2000s you've been seeing a lot of skin blur on advertisings and that is slowly changing with that comes a higher importance of professional retouching that's not going to be for every sector so there is still going to be high-end retouching or professional retouching is still going to be a niche, but that niche, there is demand for it. Also, the development in technology when it comes to AI will not change that in the near future. So I know they're working on a lot of interesting stuff in AI when it comes to processing images, and they can do some things like matching images that is maybe a thing that we will not have to invest as much effort in, in it in the future. But still, considering how many manual changes and how many decisions go into the work I do, there's no chance a computer can decide what is best for the image in, in that way. Yeah, I feel that there's going to be more of a cross-disciplinary, I guess, approach to retouching, where, you know, it's like... For some retouches, it's, you know, graphic design, I guess their base. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, they fall into photography and they're doing editing for a company, you know, and they're, you know, making mock-ups, they're doing ads, they're doing, you know, spreadsheets, they're doing uh, layouts, they're doing the way that they're envisaging from, I guess, point A to point B, and they're reducing, I guess, some of the fundamentals of what is what is retouching. And I mean, given the fact that, you know, video is becoming a bit more of a bigger role to play, I think sure. you're going to have people in the retouching industry, you know, expanding even, to even ourselves. In the video, you know, yeah. But yeah, doing more post-production in video, doing more post-production, you know, in colouring work, even in the short sense of the word of what I'm what I'm doing at the moment is I'm looking at 
applications and software that takes it further than it's just utilizing a piece of software that I can add to my work that it becomes not, not just a special effect, but it, it sort of changes the dynamics of how the image interrelates with it and how that can be implemented into my own work. And if that's simply just by changing, I guess, the structure of the image and making it more three dimensional, or if it's actually taking it on a whole new lease alive, I think there's gonna there's we're starting to see more of a, a blur between technology yep. and the technology that's been pushing out different implementations as to where say fashion and, and art actually want to interplay with technology as well as how we as I guess creators of imagery are going to be utilizing that as well. Everyone that I'm sort of following and you know seeing what people are creating, it's, you know, they're getting, they're doing less, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're, they're doing less and less in terms of some of the, the time that they're spending on their work, but they're creating like drone hyperlapses or yeah. they're creating, they use different know, tools, right? And yeah, also using different, different tools. Um, and yeah. I also and, think and, about and, but this. It's, here you go. Sorry. <laughs> and I also think about this. Um, it's not just photography. So looking at advertising, sometimes, the agency might decide of CGI might be the way to go or video or cross exchange of that. And you have to come to a point where you at least can work at these cross section fields, basically, because it's not going to be like in the past, maybe there was no other way of creating advertising except for graphics like text and uh, illustrations, or they used photography or some maybe mixed media, they called it, which was completely different from what we're seeing today. So technology changes and so changes the way of creating art and advertising. And you definitely have to look into the possibilities out there and not just say, okay, that's what I'm doing. I'm retouching images and that's what I'm going to do for the next 10 years because in 10 years, it's, the retouching field is not going to be the same as it is now. I cannot foresee how it actually will change, but we see, as you said, changes on like when video is becoming important. So, and that comes also with technology, the, the bandwidth of websites and everything has gotten better. The infrastructure there, video is more important than ever on Facebook, on Instagram and where people are. So we have to adapt for that as well. And also the demand will go up in these fields. It's not a bad thing to say, okay, I might switch gears eventually, maybe to go from 2D stills images to 2D motion pictures or go into 3D. So there's CGI still images, which you can dig into and make a cross between photography and CGI and all, all these fields. So whether it's like, motion or, or stills or 3D and 2D, there are a lot of possibilities to gain uh, work and also to make progress for yourself and what you, in terms of your skills. Well, that's, that's exactly right. Like the, the, there's a blur between, you know, is it, is it photography? Is it video GIFs and cinemagraphs and animations yeah. and plotographs and things that are elements that are moving on top of, you know, still images. Like just, it was only in the last two weeks that a job that I was doing here in Sydney was doing cinemagraphs from American Express on the job as we were shooting it. Primarily a still campaign, but me as an assistant and then also as a digi operator, I was able to create cinemagraphs 
on the job at hand so that we could determine result that could be used for social media, can be used yeah. for div interactive media that this company can actually use for the end game. Like I'm seeing that digital billboards it to be used on. I, I see I see that a lot of the work that we're seeing, it's always to do with the output. Yeah. You know, and, and less and less is primarily put on, I guess, the fact that we actually print our media. Sure. But and it's very rare to say that most people, unless they actually print their own work, they don't really have, I guess, a uh, satisfaction in the, in you know what is a, a good quality print, but that's a whole nother story. For yeah, another time. it is. But I <laughs> think know? it's super important to to outline the difference between uh, editorial and advertising again, because mm. ad editorial work that it might be displayed on social media and uh, on the internet as well as in uh, print, but in advertising, the expectations are the basic, as you said, the outlet. Yeah, they have to serve different channels and they serve different purposes yeah, yeah. you know in terms of what the media they use yeah. yeah and the better you are equipped of following the trends of what these techniques that are coming up and cross sections the, the better your chances are of delivering on such jobs because you yeah you're expected to deliver that if you get the job so and not necessarily everything will be in in a brief and as you might have figured out sometimes a client will change gears during the production and come up with other ideas or something might be missing or they have had different client feedback and they will add another channel for it so yeah outlet is different and the outlet is not just one media no and i find clients are often trying to go well how do we break into other you know areas of media how do we how do we capitalize on you know using social media as a as i guess a platform how do we capitalize on print how do we capitalize on marketing how do we capitalize on web you know there's so many factors involved with advertising that you just shooting the the normal editorial that you do, you know, once a week or, you know, once every yeah. couple of weeks. And that necessarily hasn't changed that much, right? No. So, but advertising usually is at the cutting edge of technology because also marketing, like technology develops and marketing changes. And the approach of the marketers usually try to figure out the best way to interact and to make the product stand out and reach the customer or gain interest basically so um the, the approach is a little bit different than, than just shooting editorials or catalog work maybe um so yeah you you definitely have to to gain up your game in terms of skills to to break into these fields because it's a constant changing they're constantly changing elements and technology is changing and you have to be aware of all of that and might yeah you definitely have to decide to dig into one or the other field to broaden your fields of services yeah yeah very much so and i think you have to be open to doing that as well like unless unless you're a real specialist in a specific niche of retouching or even photography for that matter you know you have to be aware of what else is happening around you that if you know if some if a client that you have says hey i need you to take some portraits but you're an architectural photographer <laughs> you have to still understand well you know how to actually make this work yeah, true. Or as we mentioned before, you have to be willing to learn basically on the job and figure out new skills or learn new skills and figure out ways for you 
to deliver what you have promised to deliver for the job. Yeah, that becomes part of the job, you know, like you can always have things that are without, not normally what you would normally do with your work, but you trying to package it so that you become desirable to clients. Yeah, or you, you maybe over deliver to a client and that makes you more uh, valuable. Very much so. I think that's super interesting to talk about and obviously enhancing your skills. I, I think we've, we've said it again and again on some episodes and it's super important to have open eyes and to look what's going on in the world. But I now want to get a little bit into more grounded topics like when you sit down and do your post-production work, is what are the tools you are actually using in terms of hardware? Okay, so if I'm if I'm talking about my current setup at the moment, I'm I've just recently upgraded my uh, 2000 mid 2012 MacBook Pro to the latest 2017 MacBook Pro. The latest and greatest, yeah. Latest and greatest um, with a touch bar, right? With a touch bar, yeah. It's I'm I'm actually enjoying the touch bar. It's not something that I've used before, but. I think I'm still to find out whether it's going to have its use or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, that's right. Well, okay, we'll talk about hardware. So, yeah, yeah I'm using a 2017 MacBook Pro. Um, I'm using a Intuos uh, Wacom um, Medium for my main main work. I actually have a large version as well, as well okay. as a small version for, for traveling. For traveling, yeah. You know, purely because, you know, location on set retouching is a pain when you don't have much space to work yeah. from. And not a proper desk. <laughs> and not a proper desk. You're usually working out of a, a Seaport or a iWork case, uh, which is a type of digi operating station. Mm. And on top of that, you're usually using sort of uh, portable, rechargeable lithium-ion batteries called Hyperjuice batteries or something equivalent to that so you can have pretty much an all-day photo shoot yeah. and not not lose power if you're on remote location. Not a generator, but a big battery pack. Yeah, a big battery pack. Yeah. So if, you, if you're looking for those, um, yeah, this is a Hyperjuice battery. There's They come in different uh, wattages. There's a 150 wattage that I use uh, and I can fly with, but you can also use a 2, which is a slightly bigger one, but you can't really fly with them. Um, so it's better for if you're on the location. I also think some flash manufacturers, they also offer um, battery packs that are super high wattage and high power uh, to power up some strobes on location. And you obviously can use them for computers and all your accessories as well. So, but yeah, they are a little bit bigger, obviously, and which goes into consideration, but sometimes it's the only opportunity you have, right? Yeah. And I, and I guess if you're really in, you know, desperate need, you can always use a generator, like a little um, Honda Petrol 2K. Well, maybe not so much for video work. Not, not, not so much for video, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't quite, doesn't quite work out that unless you're not doing sound, but you know, in terms of location work, um, yeah, it's it's actually quite easy to to work on location. Some power is better than no power. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. The only thing I'm still getting used to with this uh, this new laptop is um, you have to invest into dongles. <laughs> oh well, <laughs> so, yeah. You it's, know, every uh, port is a USB C port, yeah. and it goes into like a, a dongle or a or a um, an adapter or a hub. I mean, eventually um, we will have all. USB-C devices. But for now, I just recently talked to someone like 
if you're using the um, photography world, sometimes it's a little bit behind in technology. Um, so there's still a lot of people using cameras with firewire and they now have no way to connect them to the computer anymore. Or you yeah. have a firewire audio interface and... I still have a firewire card reader. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is like a card reader, you could adapt to Thunderbolt and then you could adapt it to USB-C if you have Thunderbolt 3 in it. Yeah. But with firewire 800, you used to power the device as well. And if you're using a dongle now to USB-C, it will not translate into the powering portion or aspect of the, the connector. And that's the issue. So yeah, uh, I mean, yeah, for for a moment, the dongle world is what Mac users have to live with. I tend to say you get a Mac because you love dongles. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've got to invest into a few more, so it, it you know, and make make the most of it. But you know, f at the moment, it seems to be it's working like a pa a workhorse. It's going to be um, my primary work machine. Mm -hmm. So if I'm working with any other photographers, I don't have any of my own files on it. I can just basically set it up so that regardless of what the photographer photographs on um i've got i've got the software and the performance to to actually do the the, the digital capturing and digital teching of the actual work yeah so again you're using a mac computer the latest and greatest as we said yeah using it also for on location using it at home yeah any other accessories except for the wacom tablet uh i can keep usually a couple of lacy portable rugged drives they're um you can get them in um, mini dis you know mini display port you can get them in USB C to USB 3 they're basically an orange rubber drive from Lacey that you can you can purchase but they're two drives usually and rate bundled together yeah and they go up to like i think 5 terabytes in some instances so that you know if you you always have you know a working drive i do um and i have used in the last 2 weeks some samsung t5 drives um mm -hmm. they're incredibly fast they're expensive but they are incredibly fast to back up uh, any content that you want and they're just a solid state ssd portable drive it wouldn't be much bigger than the size of a credit yeah. card yeah, I have a portable SSD. I, might, I just looked it up because I have it handy here. It's a T3. I don't know. It's probably the older version than of the T5. Yeah, that is, yeah. And and they work, it works solidly. Yeah. yeah. I usually use it for like when traveling and because I instantly have everything at uh, in two places. It's super great and it doesn't take up space. And also for traveling, I like SSDs more because uh, the spinning drives... They can go corrupt by uh, the vibrations they go through much more easily. And so for that reason, I prefer cards and uh, SSD drives. Yeah, it's much more reliable at the, the long. But obviously it depends on what you're doing because they are still much more expensive than regular drives. Yeah, I, I reckon another accessory that I use is my Seaport. It's basically my working, like my location working station, uh, but it's also used as a laptop bag. So, you know, I can travel with it, and but also it mounts to a tripod. So it comes with sun visors and uh, I guess a, a display oh, hood. Yeah. So if you're working outdoors in the sun. Um, Australian sun. 
<laughs> it gets very hot out here that you, you actually have something that you can protect it. But I'm actually looking to invest into an iWork case because of the the way the iWork case integrates with different laptops and configurations of how you want to set it up for efficiency. So especially for backing up, you know, mm-hmm. to multiple drives, you know, in, in terms of basically it's a custom similar to a Pelican case that you're able to actually uh, have housing and, you know, cut uh, rubber uh, specifically to suit the model of your computer. And then it comes with shades that you can actually, again, protect it from the the elements, but it's a heavy duty laptop case. (laughs) So I'm looking, I'm looking forward to um, finally having that on the, uh, on the cards, but Apart from that, I'm um, I'm waiting. In the next week, I've I've got I've ordered myself a little um, free fly movie, which will be a little gimbal for my phone to mm-hmm. do some extra BTS on set. So that will be interesting, just to add a, a different element to I guess my work. But there's also you know a bit of hardware to go with that as well. Like I've That's got right. I've ordered two moment lenses, a wide and, uh-huh. a, and a portrait lens to go on my phone, just to have some work to do on on set for recce's. I mean, yeah, it's probably expected now to create a little bit of additional content for uh, the advertising world. And yeah, what you have, what is small and what is working. And a lot of people are using phones now to create additional content. So if you can make use of stabilization and make it look more professional and uh, use different lenses and perspective, and yeah, that's obviously a great thing. Obviously, uh, you have to do some post-production on it then as well. Let's now dig into the, the software world. So if you're doing that kind of video stuff, um, what, what are you using there to do post-production? Uh, I have Final Cut Pro and I have Adobe Premiere as my two main video programs. As for photography-related instances, I think Capture One would be my go-to piece mm-hmm. of software for 99% of the photographers that I work with. They all use Capture One. I do have Lightroom because, yeah. you know, you do have people that will shoot on a Leica that will not support <laughs> yeah. on Capture One. So or the only way to do that is, or Hasselblad, you know, through the Focus software. So because I work as a digi operator, um, I have to pretty much have all pieces of software yeah, that yeah. any 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 camera system, And I always say it's, it's part of your job to know about uh, all the software and how you use it. And it's also becoming aware of, you know, the limitations of what each software can do as well. Yeah, so, true. And I think that's something that was ingrained into me years ago is that each piece of software will treat raw images differently. differently and, yeah. you know, regardless if this is the best, you know, considered, you know, in terms of marketing hype, what is the best raw converter? Right. Each raw conversion has its positives and negatives. Um, you know, they will treat images completely different because a raw conversion primarily is just ones and zeros and then used in a container for software to then, I guess, read the file and how it reads the file determines the result. Yeah, they're basically processing the images for you already. I like to compare you know? it to what's going on in, in the video world because our raw processors, they take up, they take away so much work that the video post-production has to do. So we do not have to figure out what log files are, how to process them and uh, to manage colors, input and output color spaces. It's all set and done for us in the raw converters and they all do it differently. And yeah, obviously they look differently and they give you a different starting point. And I always 
I think it's diff difficult to explain to photographers that what you are presented as a starting point without doing adjustments in a raw converter is a processed image that is already processed and you're just adding on top of it basically. So it's, it's not linear. It's not a linear conversion into the color space or and they do contrast adjustments for you. They do color adjustments for you. They do everything that you have additional sliders for out of the box. So they just give you a different starting point and it's up to you to explore how much you can push an image before it's starting to deteriorate and to break down, right? And that might be different from one to the other software because it might have been pushed the image already much further than another raw converter has done, right? And a lot of people are not aware of that. Yeah, I don't think people are aware that, you know, even just a simple exposure change or how much it can actually recover in each file, you know, how it reads the file in terms of just, like I said, exposure and color temperature. And I mean, if they're the only two variables that I look at when I'm looking at raw images, there's no right or wrong, which you know, which is the best piece of software. It's how it determines the file, you know. And so like for Leica's files, they work perfectly in Lightroom, whereas yeah. you wouldn't normally take it from Lightroom and then you export it as a TIFF and then you put it into Capture One, then you process it into something else. Like you're using the right piece of software yeah. for the right reasons, not necessarily convoluting the process. But yeah, I've seen people do that. So they want to use Capture One and they use a DNG converter and then they basically have the processed image process it, embed a color profile, and then they go in it and loading it in a raw converter that thinks, oh, that looks like maybe a raw image, but it also has all that information already baked in there. And on top of that, you are processing it, and then you are doing your adjustments, and it's not going to be a predictable result and not going to be a good result yeah. as well. Well, I find you want to keep it as native as you possibly can with any file, you know, before you start converting it to a DNG. As I was saying, you want to have a good base unit for the right file. You know, you want to use the, the right software, you know, and not be changing it primarily just to, to suit, you know, well, I've got to convert it to a DNG because that's how I've been told. Yeah. Well, the DNG thing is a topic on itself. I know people who use it all the time and I would like to stay away from it as much as possible um, because there are different ways of creating a DNG yep. and the outcome is different every time yeah. depending on the method you're using i think it's a convoluted process it yeah it basically strips away some features that usually a raw file has so it will bake in hard bake in the color profiles that adobe has and they will be fixed basically and from there you are actually even though you can recover a little bit more information about the highlights and the shadows apart from that you have to treat it like you would treat a processed TIFF file. Mm. Yeah, it's not the same as natively processing a raw file. But no, it, it certainly it certainly opens up, you know, options that you can use in different pieces of software, you know, and I think if you're not familiar with certain software, get them all. Like try it, you know, see if it if it works for you. Yeah. You know, you don't have to necessarily follow the masses and go, this piece of software is because everyone else has recommended. You've got to see what actually works for your images. True. So it just depends. So you're using a variety of software, um, Hasselblad Focus, Capture yep. One, and Adobe products. Final Cut. Yeah, I've got Final Cut, Cut Pro for video as well. So I let's talk a little bit about workflow. So when you are doing digital tech work or importing your images, 
when you're using Lightroom, you obviously stuck with using their library. And in Capture One, I know they have a library, but they also work session based. So what what are you prefer? Uh, what is your preferred method there? Well, every new job is a new session. Every day is a new session, so that it becomes a container f of the files, and you could even split it up within that session under different shot numbers or different, I guess, categories. Uh, that depend on how you actually create an image. So if I was doing a job tomorrow, I would create a session, the name of the job, the, who the client is. I would have that as part of the, um, the I guess, the container of, the, of, of a folder. And inside that would have the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the capture project. It would have all the raw images sequenced out in different shot numbers if I was shooting like an editorial. And then... It would obviously have output. It would have, you know, exports if I needed to do like a quick export of the various files. Uh, it'd have all the trash files as there as well. But that allows me to, you know, if I was doing day two, like, you know, the, the following day or even the following week, depending on, you know, how jobs work, you can always have, find that smaller sessions, you know, in terms of keeping as many files as you can from that particular job is easier than mm -hmm. having a catalog with hundreds of projects in it. Yeah, it's easier to transfer from one, one machine to another. It's faster on your uh, load times when opening up a project, when processing and all that stuff. So, And, I, yeah. and I think it's easier also for just peace of mind so you know where those images were for that particular job yeah you know like you would yeah true I mean you have to have a folder structure uh, nevertheless and what I like about Capture One you can have Capture One as your project managing tool yeah. basically so you open up your project and you do not see anything else so you're just confronted with what you need to focus on Yeah, and I do exactly that, but then I separate so that if I have, like I'm shooting to a particular folder within the capture folder itself, I'll have like shot one. So all of my shot ones go into that folder. So again, I've made all of, say, shot one, shot two, shot three, smaller files again, so I can find my favorites a lot easier. I can find my favorites from the whole day. I can create a, I guess a, a quick overview as to what I've photographed for my client mm -hmm. or who I'm working with, you know, on a job that are at least able to, you know, differentiate the images. I can obviously apply custom grades. I can give color treatments and I can make the images look better. But the, one of the main things I think that Capture One does over, say, Lightroom in terms of tethering support is exactly that, that you have tethering support capture one which you don't really have in lightroom yeah semi-based so you can <laughs> capture and half of the time it's not working but um i mean when when you finally get it up and running and if you haven't used you know capture one beforehand is that you can actually control all your camera settings you can change without having to go to the camera itself and change you know the shutter speed or the or the f-stop or the iso you can actually you know, change the individual values of the different settings. So you can control the camera as you see fit. So one of the aspects of having a digital operator on a job is that if the photographer is shooting a slightly little bit overexposed, you can easily adjust the settings to allow for that. You can also communicate <laughs> and say, hey, can you close down a little bit? You know, you're, it's coming in too hot. 
So with deadlines uh, and with, I guess, clients working on set, you can also see what they're wanting and you can easily convey that and easily change the settings for the photographer or on behalf of the photographer to suit the needs of mm. what the client's intending the final image to look like. Yeah. So when you have processed your images, so how are you taking it from there? You mentioned you are using TIFF files usually to work with. Yeah, usually usually I would work on TIFF files. So you're the, there's a second person I now interview who's not using Photoshop native format. Um, can you get into that a little bit? Why? Well, the thing is I export in SD, but then I will have a copy of the file if I require as a TIFF. I mean, both support layers. I actually like working with PSDs or PSBs more than TIFF. But depends on the job. I find that PSDs and PSBs are obviously native Photoshop documents. Depending on the file size, you'll have limitations as to how much you can actually, you know, yeah. use. So what what does me about the um, PSD and PSB files is um, there's no way for you, even in the Adobe infrastructure, for you to start with a PSB file. So you will always have to open up a Photoshop file and then manually save manually save PSB it out file. yeah and that is something I do not like so I start usually start with a TIFF file because I am not confronted with the two gigabyte file size limit yeah and I, I like the fact that if I'm using if I'm doing say a mock-up in or a layout in InDesign with a TIFF file and if it's got layers I can always double click the source file and then I can easily just turn off the layer that I need to if I've got different grades on a TIFF file and then just re-update it, you know, to refresh it in InDesign. So there's a nice way of communicating with multiple platforms with TIFF files, mm -hmm. which I find easier in the long term. But I mean, if it's primarily just retouching images, I will probably, my go-to will be a PSD or a PSB. But like you said, it, there's limitations to the fact that you can't always open a file directly without having to go back into it. I do get some errors at times with uh, TIFFs and, and PSDs and, and PSVs, depending on how the file structure and the layer structure is created. You know, even earlier tonight um, that I was doing some retouching, you know, I, I did a simple adjustment And then it corrupted all of my masks on on a, on a layered document. So I had yeah. to go back through and simply change it. And it's not something that I normally have happened. But, you know, given the fact that I've just upgraded to the latest Photoshop, there seems to be a few errors still that I'm discovering. Yeah, they're just translating word from one to the other, maybe. Yeah, and it's not necessarily, you know, allowing me to use just a simple solid color adjustment. <laughs> But it, you know, corrupts all my masks. So well, Yeah, it's all digital and digital comes with problems every now and then, no matter the file format, I guess. Very true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very true. <laughs> Let's get into a little commercial break here. First of all, I like to remind you that the show is brought to you by boutiqueretouching.com and also learnpostproduction.com. So let's get into the news. And the news is on boutiqueretouching.com, I have opened up booking options for one-on-one -on -one classes in the store. The special thing about it is it is going to be online classes, one-on-one, -on -one, and the courses will be targeted to your needs. So that's something to keep in mind. It's not me just going over what I do. It is me training you to get better. And that's a unique opportunity. And there are exactly five spots for people to book 
personal classes and October 15th we will close the scheduling options and then that's going to be all of it for probably the rest of the year. So if you want to be one of the five spots, head over to boutiqueretouching.com, go into the store and consider booking the masterclass there. And now let's get back into the interview. Welcome back. <laughs> so when you are in Photoshop, we've talked already about some techniques being super hype. What I want to ask in terms of technique, is there a favorite adjustment layer or a favorite technique that you have and use all over again? There is a really nice way of creating mid-tone adjustment, uh, mid-tone contrast, sorry, to images to give it a really nice pop of contrast. There's a little known flaw within Photoshop that I've known for a while where if you load an image into Photoshop, and then if you command or control click on a channel to load it as a selection, what you can do is you can do a, an adjustment through the selection and then deactivate the selection. So it still applies the effect, but it allows you to also basically remove and negate the effect. So you're not actually masking it, but you've negated it from the selection. Oh. I have to try now. Yeah, it's a really nice adjustment. I'm pushing out all the secrets here. Yeah. Oh, look, it's amazing. So well, for those playing at home, <laughs> I'll walk you through how to do it. It's it's really easy. Um, simply create a stamp merge visible layer. So that's usually command option shift E. Or for the computer users, it's uh, control alt shift E. Or you simply just create a flattened version of the file and just duplicate the layer. Yeah. Then you go down to, uh, you, you have your channel window open. Uh, not many people actually keep the channel window open, but it's a really nice way of seeing how images actually exist in, in, in the different channels. But so the channel window also is important. Not necessarily, it's super easy to click on the channel, but also when you're saving selections for later use, you can either use masks uh, that you have already have an adjustment for. But when you have saved selections that are not bound to an adjustment layer, they will also be in the channels window. And that's super important for you to work on and to have open and access to all the time. Yeah, perfect. So all I do is like command or control click on the RGB channel, which what it does is you have these amazing little uh, marching ants, as they're called, across your screen. What it does is it creates a selection of 50% or brighter on the image. So anything that's super dark will not actually be affected, but it will still be seen in the image. If you're using um, Photoshop CC and above, so up to the latest version, you will have a filter option to do uh, something through the camera raw filter. So what you do is you go filter, camera raw filter, you can later, you can, you can do it after the fact. Now, once you're in the camera raw window, you can actually just increase clarity. Now, the preview is happening to the entire image. So you actually disregard the preview. Uh, all you do then is you just, you can increase the clarity to 100% if you want, or you can leave it at 60 or whatever, you know, number that you want. But I, I try to overdo the adjustment because once it goes through this channel, this selection, it will still have the effect, but it won't yeah. be applied to everything. Yeah, so, and it's not that the selection will not show up in the camera raw filter. So it's going no, to show the whole image. 
it's going to show the whole image as if you applied 100% clarity. So at the moment, it will look wrong. Um, then you click OK, and then you simply deselect the selection. So Command or Control D on within Photoshop, and then you'll have this really crunchy mid-tone contrast adjustment that affects your image proportionally through a channel or a selection that's been deactivated. So it's quite an unusual technique. Mm -hmm. Not many people know about it, but I find that if I'm doing any like work that's more, um, you know, portraits, advertising, architectural work, even landscape work, towards the end of my process, I'll just give it a little bit of a push of contrast. Yeah. And this is a nice way of giving a push of contrast in yeah, any gives, image. it gives more clarity or more perceived sharpness without over-sharpening like super fine detail, which would create artifacts. Yeah, and then given the fact that it's just a solid layer, then you can obviously add a layer mask and you can yeah. paint it or apply it selectively right. to, to your image. Or you can uh, use the, the blend sliders on it and opacity to make it fit better with what your needs are. So I see there's a ton, there's a ton of flexibility in this technique. Yeah, it, it certainly is something that I've been using for a number of years now, but I find something so simple can have a raw impact within your work. You're able to push contrast a lot further with not necessarily just, you know, winging it with a slide bar. It, it yeah. actually has proportion to it because of the channel. And the better the channel, the better the, the contrast. It will also affect less of the image in terms of the negative side effects of adding contrast, like oversaturated areas and all that. That comes by just globally uh, adjusting contrast. Yeah, makes it a lot easier. That would definitely be one of my favorite techniques. For those playing at home, I think if you haven't become familiar with the pen tool, as difficult as it can be, there is a little um, function that most people don't know about, which is um, it's called a rubber band. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're still learning the pen tool, what the rubber band option is, it's within the pen tool itself, there's a little cog or a little cog window up the top of the, um, the screen. And if you enable rubber band in the check menu, what that allows you to do is see the next point of where you're creating a path. So paths are obviously very controllable, you know, ways to create a selection. You know, when you first use a pen tool, you obviously, you know, you have an, uh, a first point and then you have an Aiken point and, you know, you have, I guess, a way of shaping the points. But if you've never used a pen tool before and you want to delve into creating selections, I find enabling the rubber band uh, function to the, the, the actual uh, pen allows you to have a little bit more control and I guess also speed and efficiency. And a visual feedback for, for those who are not familiar with. Yeah, to at least sort of see what you're able to do with yeah. a pen. And it doesn't have to be perfect, but once you obviously finish that selection and you can refine that selection, it, it allows you to then obviously edit, you know, the individual points as well. So you've got control over, over your image. What, what I do not like uh, recently is in the past years, they have changed so much of the quick selection tool and it has gotten so performance intensive that it's gotten to a point where it's almost unusable. That's why I try not to use it as much as I used to. I, I mean, definitely you have to refine edges, but it used to be better. But yeah. 
Yeah, it's not something like I don't, I'll be honest with you, I don't use a lot of the quick selection tools. I find that I spend more time trying to work out how they actually work than they actually doing the job in the first place. So you're saying they're not as intelligent as they claim to be. Uh, well, it's like giving content aware on a on a healing brush. It yeah. doesn't doesn't mean it actually works. Yeah. <laughs> it's so frustrating where they took the healing brush, having this direct visual feedback of what it's doing, because it is applying it as you are dragging, and you have no way to refine the area you are applying it to because you are constantly applying it, and it's constantly calculating and oversampling pixels. So it's constantly oversampling pixels and it's not making it better quality. So yeah, we usually, and I think you also do it, uh, revert to the uh, legacy healing brush setting. Yeah. Well, it means that I don't have this wait time as well. It's a bit more responsive to actually yeah. using the, you know, the source and I guess where you, you've got more control over what you're wanting. What I did notice, which was interesting, is I don't know if it's if it's just this version, but there is a diffusion slide bar that I can add diffusion to my yeah. uh, to mask. <laughs> healing brush to, oh, the, yeah, to yeah. the to the actual brush yeah. strokes. So not something that I would want to um, what I actually experiment with. But you know how I yeah normally work is you know healing brush and clone stamp for you know trying to clean up areas or in certain circumstances I'll actually cut and paste various parts of images mm -hmm. and then just mask them back in yeah. depending on what it is. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's definitely most likely when you're copying complete pixels that fit in with just masking it, it's going to be better quality because you do not have repetitive patterns. You do not have oversampling of, of set pixel values, which can degrade sharpness and all that. So it's much better to cover something up by existing material than to try to create it by healing or cloning different parts of the the image. Especially like some people, they use the clone stamp tool not with 100% opacity. And what it, what it does is like painting over the image basically and creating a blur because it's partially overlaying pixels. Yeah, I remember that used to be a skin softening technique. Oh yeah, or back just in, using the <laughs> yeah, or, or, or back, using a brush back in the late two thousands. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. it was it was called the slick force technique. Yeah, and when when people have an eye back, you just sample somewhere below and paint yeah, over and it, then it was or, like or sample over it, yeah. and then you reduce the opacity, and that's how you yeah. get rid of eye backs, and they're still there, which is mushy. <laughs> yeah, it just doesn't give a nice consistency. <laughs> But it's true though, like when you when you use techniques, I mean, look, how I look at, I think, most post-production is that if you have a sense of quality control, there's a lot of untapped things that you could do to oversimplify the work that you do. What I'm trying to explain is that if you're wanting to smooth the skin, smooth the skin in a way that it goes in between, you know, harsh contrast. It separates the skin from the eyebrows or, yeah. you know, from the eyelashes. So that's the biggest problem. And the easiest way for me to explain with frequency separation is that going into a high contrast area. So where there are specular highlights in the skin and you're smoothing out everything else. And then you have random bits of texture floating over color and that's not working. It's just not working. Yeah, it never works. I mean, even I like to experiment with techniques, you know, that people, you know, obviously are, are posting and trying different things. And 
using different ways of, you know, how do I incorporate into my own workflow? I often will apply, I guess, a bit of channel theory to the work. So it's like, well, okay, if this adjustment affects everything, if I apply a channel to it, how much control do I actually have when I edit my images? Yeah, true. Sometimes you can make a technique that is not really usable, quite usable and efficient by knowing what it affects and controlling what it affects in particular. So I know sometimes you're working on location and sometimes yep. you're working home basically, or let's call it office. And for post-production, you have quite some stretches usually to sit down and focus and being at the desk. So what you're doing to basically stay fit while being bound to the desk for quite some time? I think you have to get out and get some fresh air <laughs> often. I think uh, it's quite easy to say when you're living in Australia and Sydney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I live near the beach, you know, I'm, I'm able to have the sea air, so it's it makes it a bit Man, easier. I have to move to Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind yeah, of unfair, but yeah. Um, yeah. So what, what what else? Like you you do you have routines to to get up? Yeah, I I I, I pretty much set a, a timer. So that I'm not really, you know, working at the table for more than, you know, an hour and a half straight. Um, And then I'll have like at least to, you know, get up, stretch my legs, you know, go get something to eat, you know, drink, just rehydrate myself. Because you you don't realize how intensely you stare at a screen after a while and you feel a bit, you know, out of it, you know. Yeah. And if you if you can't sort of identify, well, you need to stretch your legs and not necessarily look be looking at a screen. You know, I find if I need a break, I'll I'll actually switch off and just listen to some music and just mm-hmm. relax. Um, or you know, lie down and actually you know actually have a rest. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's it's just finding the balance between, you know, you've got deadlines. You know, when I'm not at a computer. I'm usually processing images, so I'll have a workflow that I can just run and it's automated and then I'll come back to it later when it's built all my layers for me that I just have to basically paint on the masks to have certain work achieved and and have spat out so that it actually has some consistency. I think we've all been where we forced ourselves to be in front of the computer and you're getting tired, your eyes are getting tired and you're just slowing down and it's it's not efficient anymore. I think the best piece of advice that I can give to people is come back to the work the next day. Like you're not too like time sensitive with work, your own work, have fresh eyes when you're doing, you know, your reviews or you're doing your, you know, markups or you're doing your your composites because that extra like 5% of your energy level being a little bit more alert and a bit more aware of the situation, it means that you're never going to sacrifice the quality of your work. You know, you're going to be producing good quality work that, you know, is refined and thought about instead of delivering content that's half done. True. And no one wants that. We've all done it where we've, like you said, you know, we've we've spent hours and hours and hours and hours trying to get things done. But, you know, you come to the next day and you go, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> yeah, it happens. You know, it happens, it happens all the time. At some point your eyes are dig, 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 just don't pick up anything properly anymore like be it color or anything just goes all wanky when you're tired and also your mood influences how you perceive color and everything so yeah so yeah i mean we've talked for so long and about so many (laughs) topics and 
super yeah. in-depth as well. But now wrapping up the episode, can you, uh, for people who are trying to get in the industry or are still at the beginner stage, which advice would you give a beginner who wants to get into the industry and wants to get into post-production and retouching? Which would be the advice you would give that person? I think if you're becoming a photographer or you're becoming a retoucher or you're becoming a graphic designer or you've got an insight into an area that you may not be 100% sure on, but if you're wanting to give it a go, there's nothing really stopping you. In terms of retouching, you can be anywhere in the world. You can find clients easily in your local town. You just have to reach out to people. If you're wanting to learn, don't be afraid to ask. I mean, there really isn't too many secrets in post-production. Most of it is just application of these techniques. Yeah, and that goes back to an episode which has come out already where I talked about how you can get clients, how you can reach out and how you should not reach out to them. So I was already giving some advice and that's also a great idea of yours. This business can be local business. This can also be an international business depending on how you feel and how you are as a person and what you feel comfortable with. So figure out for yourself if you want to reach out via email and how to do it properly or just go out to events and meet people there if that's more what you want to do and if you want to work with personal clients. I think networking is definitely important. And I think networking in the right way, not the wrong way. Like don't be <laughs> abusing someone because they haven't gotten back to you. We're yes. all busy people at the end of the day. Yeah, we are. I think and we, we also do not own someone else something so don't expect yeah. people to to give something for you just because you are so amazing yeah and i think the other side of it is put your best foot forward like don't don't be afraid to show work don't be afraid to show good work you're always going to be seen as the best job is the last one that you basically have done it needs to be current it needs to be Uh, it may not be 100% perfect, but, you know, if you're finding someone to work with, you know, you're going to be working to their standards. So just practice, put the time in, put the, the time in understanding some of the techniques, put the time into understanding how it interacts with other adjustments. Don't be afraid to try new things, but just be keep an open mind that, you know, what you do to your images may not be what a client needs from you for their own they may have a completely different appreciation or aesthetic to what yours is but just be open to changing or adapting and refining your process how you actually work with the client because how you work with the client says more about your work than how you go well i use frequency separation and it's specific to a technique be open to change be open to you know trying things that are a little bit different but i find that Less is more, you know, you can do a lot of work, not, not by spending hours in front of a computer. You can do a lot of retouching work exactly the same way. So yeah, don't be, don't be afraid to um, reach out to people and, you know, offer your services. Ask if you can do a trial. What more are they going to not say to you? Oh, no, I'm not interested. Or the fact that, oh, actually that could be, you know, perfect opportunity, perfect timing and see what can come of it. That's so true. And that's super great advice. Now tell the people before we wrap it up, where can people find you when they want to reach out to you, like see your work or get in contact? I know you are also teaching Photoshop. So how can people reach out to you? Yeah, I have a website. It's just brockmcfadgen.com. Um, I'm sure Daniel can put up a, a link to my Instagram. I will put it everywhere. 
yeah, feel free to reach out to me, send me an email. If you've got any questions, like Daniel said, I do do sort of one-on-one teaching and training and um, yeah, look forward to hearing from you soon. So yeah, if, you, if you've got any questions, don't, don't hesitate to uh, send me a message and we can go from there. Yeah, definitely check out Brock's work. And again, it's been super great to hang out and have a chat. We do not get the opportunity to do this as often as we like. So it was a pleasure to have you on here and to discuss all these topics. Thanks for having me, Dan. I look forward to the next one. Yeah, I hope we can get you back on another episode. Oh, perfect. All right, take it easy, man. Bye. So that was episode number 13 of the Let's Talk Retouching podcast. Thanks for sticking around for so long. If you like our content, subscribe to the podcast and also consider leaving us a review. Until then, see you next time. I'm gonna do it like this. Oh yeah. Get closer to the microphone. <laughs> I guess I've got a question for you, Daniel. Where do you think retouching is going in 2018? Good question. I hope you don't mind me like... asking you questions. No, I don't <laughs> mind. Well. But I have to go pee. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs>